Al Jazeera Podcasts. Without the truth, there's no light. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. U.S. President Joe Biden was minutes into a speech at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. It's the second campaign speech he's given this year, ahead of the 2024 presidential election, when suddenly... Which then turned into... Biden is facing dissent from every direction. Protesters demanding a ceasefire in Israel's war on Gaza are targeting both him and members of his cabinet. And inside the administration, things are just as messy. The Israel-Hamas war is setting President Biden at odds with American voters, his own supporters, and members of his own administration. All of that's colliding as his foreign policy comes increasingly under scrutiny. We have breaking news to report. As we speak right now, U.S. and U.K. airstrikes are targeting Houthi positions in Yemen. So what does that look like for the people behind the president? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Ever since October 7th, the White House press briefing has become must-watch TV. Here's what happened in a briefing on the president's airplane on Friday. It was the day after the U.S. and U.K. bombed dozens of sites in Yemen in what Biden called a direct response to Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. We're not interested in a conflict of any kind here. In fact, everything the president has been doing has been trying to prevent uh, any escalation of conflict, uh, including the strikes last night. The concerns are serious, and now they're escalating. But before these particular strikes... We also saw a new genre of critique, like this video from TikToker Godiva Goddess. I'm not sure if you watched the White House press meeting yesterday, but baby, it was going down, okay? So Kirby was um, taking questions, okay? And everybody was asking their questions, but this woman in the green, she said, you know what? I like problems. I'm going to choose problems always. Kirby is John Kirby the U.S. National Security Council coordinator for strategic communications. And the woman in green is my colleague, Kimberly Halkett, Al Jazeera's White House correspondent. Something she said really struck me. She said, we're literally all telling you she's speaking for the people. That is my goal. This particular line of questioning from Kimberly came about a week before the U.S. and U.K. bombed Yemen. And it was about whether Biden's policies were escalating tensions in the region. Is that not being seen as a provocation? If you know that Iran sees that as a provocation, you take the action anyway. That's certainly turning things on their upside down, isn't it? I didn't set out for the John Kirby Red Sea Exchange to be a viral moment. I am ready every day to grill the press secretaries and This day, I just happen to be called on. I don't get called on a lot because they don't like me. I challenge them. I ask follow-ups. I don't accept their talking points. And often, 
if we have an interaction, it usually doesn't end well for them. And so I was a little surprised at how long this exchange went. And in the moment, I was thinking, why am I not being shut down? This exchange happened on January 3rd. And then on January 5th, an article came out in the U.S. news outlet Axios about a, quote, tense podium battle between Kirby and White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, the person who called on Kimberly in the first place. Usually those press briefings are a one-person show, run by the press secretary, Jean-Pierre. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Okay, so this morning, President Biden announced that... But recently, that hasn't been the case. When Jean-Pierre assumed her role in 2022, U.S. President Joe Biden told her she'd be teaming up with Kirby. According to that Axios report, it's kind of a fraught arrangement for the two. She was not throwing him a life preserver the way that normally she might have. She was letting him squirm. And that benefited me, and that benefited the global audience, because it allowed me more time to ask questions and to dissect his answers, which were not adding up. You said nothing the president has ordered has been designed to widen or deepen this conflict. And so I kept hammering him, and he was defending the indefensible. As long as American policies are affecting the global audience, they need a voice, and I'm trying to be that voice in that room. As Israel's war on Gaza continues, John Kirby has become a mainstay of the White House press briefings. John Kirby comes in because he knows foreign policy. He knows national security. It's not Corrine's strong point. Domestic issues are her bread and butter. That's not John Kirby's strong suit. He is an admiral from the U.S. Navy. In many ways, maybe it waters down the achievement Corrine Jean-Pierre has achieved in terms of being the first openly gay Black woman to hold the position of White House press secretary. But at the end of the day, we're in the middle of a potentially third world war. And she does not know foreign policy the way John Kirby knows it. And that's why the president has John Kirby coming into the briefing room. But yeah, you can feel the tension in the room sometimes. And if you look at Corrine Jean-Pierre's face, she is not happy sometimes to be sharing that stage. And uh, she makes it known. What is the saying? In, um, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Uh, you know, maybe John Kirby has a dog. <laughs> Kirby might not have friends on his side of the podium, but he does have friends in the briefing room. Akbar Shahid Ahmed, the senior diplomatic correspondent for HuffPost, has been following his long career in Washington, D.C., among other things. I cover a range of agencies, White House, State Department, Pentagon, and a range of dodgy diplomats. Kirby's role has been growing since Israel's war on Gaza began, as he's become the spokesperson for Joe Biden's support of Israel. He's gotten a lot of attention for statements like this. Being honest about the fact that there have been civilian casualties and that there likely will be more is being honest, because that's what war is. It's brutal, it's ugly, it's messy. So, Akbar, why do you think he's becoming a more public face over the past 
three months or so? I'd say it's because of how sensitive this issue is. And by that, I mean, uh, I think people often use sensitive to say uh, this is too complicated to talk about. It's sensitive because this administration is choosing to, in the face of immense criticism and evidence suggesting there are problems with its policy, they are choosing to stand by the same policy. Given that, I think they need someone who can really have the heft to defend that policy and has kind of unimpeachable credentials. John Kirby served uh, as the Pentagon and state spokesperson in the Obama administration, defending, justifying, explaining a range of very controversial policies, right? So notably, Obama's decision to support a Saudi-led coalition in Yemen that was carrying out alleged war crimes, starving millions of people. I think what he's managed to do, not just in the Obama era, but importantly in the Trump era, where he was a kind of national security talking head for the Democratic Party on MSNBC, CNN, is establish himself as this very trusted, close advisor. And I think in the Biden context, that is what matters above all, right? Being in the five to 10 people the president wants to talk to all the time. I think people in the administration have noted that the vast majority of those people do end up being white men. I think that's a relevant factor, given the president's state commitments to diversity, hearing from a diverse group of people. Um, I also note that Kirby's relationships with the press cannot be overstated. He is so well-liked. He is so well-connected. Again, a lot of National Security Press Corps has known him for 10, 15 years, and many of them see themselves in Kirby. Kirby might be speaking in a language that Biden, as well as some of the White House press corps, understand. But he's also gotten a lot of flack online for some of his statements. Biden's Gaza policies are pretty unpopular, especially with young voters. 60% of young voters say they oppose more funding and military aid to Israel. And the president, as well as members of his cabinet, have been targeted by protests over the past three months over those policies. Pro-Palestinian activists rallied outside the home of U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin this morning. Protesters gathered in northwest D.C., marching outside the home of White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. I know that you've talked to quite a lot of staffers in the administration about their own dissent of these policies. So how are these protests that they have to be seeing being received by them? And how are they feeling about their own careers and credibility in the face of them? It's really evolved, Malika, over the course of now four months, because I'd say right after October 7th, when there was this deep wellspring of sympathy and there was a lot of shock. But what became very clear two people inside the administration, and I I was the first to report on this, is there was a kind of culture of silence and a real sense of fear that if we are seen as questioning the policy in any way, in the way that we are actually tasked to do as national security experts, there was a feeling amongst staffers that that wasn't welcome in the administration and if anything could lead to retaliation uh, and hurt their own careers. So how are they managing that? What is that look like? What have people told you? Initially, there was a sense that people may start to resign en masse. So I broke the news of the first big resignation, which was Josh Paul. 
a veteran State Department official in the bureau that oversees arms transfers, resigned in protest of the Biden administration's decision to boost military aid to Israel. Before this war, Paul told CNN in December there was room for debate about policy, even when it came to Israel. But ever since October 7th, What was different here was that there was no discussion. There was no space for that discussion. Uh, There was simply an approach of essentially the barn doors are open, and that remains the case. But we haven't actually seen mass resignations. I think there's a number of reasons for that. There's been a lot of work by the administration to kind of win back its staffers. They know it would look bad for them to have an exodus. And there's a fear of being seen as leaving in this moment. So given the public outrage, they're almost having to choose to look away, which I think many of them feel horrible about. Hmm. But they have explicitly been told, I've reported in some cases, by senior State Department officials, look, the president defines the Gaza policy. He is not interested in hearing from people, even with national security expertise in his own government. Mm -hmm. So try to use your expertise on different projects if you don't feel you can go along with the president's clear policy on Israel-Palestine. After the break, who is driving Biden's Gaza policy? On the next Necessary Tomorrows, science fiction writer Christopher Brown imagines a future where animals have the same rights as humans. If corporations have rights, why can't trees? If a corporation can be a legal person, why can't an elephant? An indigenous lawyer, Jack Fiander, takes the city of Seattle into tribal court on behalf of salmon for destroying their habitat with a dam. If it ultimately established that salmon have rights that can be violated, just like people do, that would be pretty earth-shaking. The Rights of Nature, on Necessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Akbar, one of the reasons why some career diplomats might be feeling sidelined, as you've reported, is because of a man named Brett McGurk. He's had some role in every White House administration since 2004. His position right now is White House Coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa. And the headline of your piece about him calls him the, quote, deeply controversial White House advisor running the agenda on Gaza, end quote. I think it's critical to see McGurk as a product of post-2003, post-Iraq invasion, U.S. foreign policy. We're a global power with global priorities, but this region is interwoven with important and vital American interests. This is a man whose entire job and his advancement in his career, his growing influence, has been in the context of that period, And he's not been someone who has questioned most of the assumptions of that period. If anything, he has doubled down on a lot of them, right? On the idea of a very intense U.S. presence in the Middle East. In terms of McGurk's relation to the Gaza crisis, is that he has prioritized a Saudi-Israel deal throughout the Biden administration. A deal that many Palestinians worry kind of pushes their concerns to the side and makes solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict less of a priority. Mm. Why do you think that they would still be pushing this deal 
often called the normalization deal, forward even in the face of what we're seeing in Gaza? <laughs> uh, there's a number of reasons. I, 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 I'm sorry to laugh. It's, it's just, it's, uh, it's a question that's being asked, Malika, in Congress. It's being asked by people inside the administration. I can't tell you how many people are asking that question right now in Washington. I think for McGurk personally, it's the culmination of a lot of his thinking, which is that the one lesson he's taken from the post-2003 war and period is that he doesn't really support huge incursions of U.S. troops and U.S. influence. But the flip side of that is, I want U.S.-friendly governments to be really dominant, regardless of what their populations might think, right? And regardless of what implications that might have. So for him, he feels he can kind of create some version of stability if Saudi and Israel become friendly. Biden ran on separating himself from Trump but kept an administration official on who's been on in the Trump era, the Obama era, the Bush era. What does that tell us about how these things actually work? (laughs) I think it tells us, uh, I I won't put my own words, but one official said to me, quote, he's almost by example of why it's great to be a white guy, (laughs) right? International (laughs) security establishment. So this idea of continued failure and not being kind of pressured or questioned as a result of that, right? Being able to move up and get bigger and bigger jobs, maybe because of likability, maybe because, you know, apples pick apples. The president made repeated commitments to bringing in a more diverse national security staff, right? They love to talk about being the most diverse administration in history, But what this moment since October 7th has made people feel is an exacerbation of what they've been feeling for some months now. I had one person say to me, quote, the inner, inner circle on these issues is not at all diverse. Does that completely explain the monstrous disregard for innocent Palestinian lives? No, but it's hard to think these things are entirely disconnected. What is the mood like? Are there any moments from interviews that have stuck with you? I'd say the mood is, it's one of, of huh, not just frustration, but I'd say deep heartache among a lot of national security officials, almost shock. Mm. Um, one instance that came up recently in my reporting in December was uh, there's still hundreds of American citizens trapped in Gaza and their close relatives amid growing mass starvation, bombardment, the horrible conditions we know about. And State Department officials have actually been told they can't reveal to American citizens that Israel has blocked their relatives from exit lists. Wow. And they've even been told to tell American citizens, keep your family members where they are. It may be safer for them to stay there uh, instead of trying to leave. No. Which is such an admission of, you know... Limited U.S. influence, but also to a lot of people, a lack of humanity. I just want to break this down, make sure I'm getting it. State Department staffers are being told by administration that when trying to get Americans who are stuck in Gaza out, that it actually would be safer to stay put because that border crossing is not safe. There's an admission that it's not safe, but not an admission that these are American citizens that we're ready to do anything for. Uh, ready to. Is that right? Ready to and, and legally bound to. 
importantly, right? That mm. is the law. It is the law that the U.S. government has to do everything it can to help citizens out in situations like this. Which is why, Malika, there are now multiple lawsuits hmm. by family members of Americans and Americans whose relatives are there, saying the government is is derelict in its duty. So, Akbar, Biden's policy towards Israel has been described as a bear hug, basically keeping Benjamin Netanyahu close to influence his policy in Gaza. History has shown that that is not the only way forward. U.S. President George H.W. Bush conditioned aid to Israel over settlement construction. His predecessor, Ronald Reagan, did the same during Israel's war with Lebanon. Why do you think, based on your reporting, that Biden has gone down the course that he's chosen? I think it's important to remember that Biden, even historically and traditionally before becoming president, was more hawkish on Israel than your average Democrat or your average American politician. Here's Biden speaking on the floor of the Senate back in 1986. I think it's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel and this body for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. I think post-October 7th, given the intense emotional reactions that seem to be driving the president and some of his staffers, and then given the really shocking and unprecedented situation in Gaza, just tensions are so high that I think even within the administration, people don't want to pick fights or don't know how to even have these conversations about changing the policy because everyone's backs are up and it's clear the president doesn't want to budge. And that's The Take. Special thanks to Chris Sheridan. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliayi with Miranda Lynn, Zaina Bezer, Sonia Bagat, Veronisa Campana, David Enders, Sariyad Khalili, Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Malhotra, Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.